So for the last several weeks in our house, as we were anticipating the birth of Abigail, we were busy in the time of preparation. Of course, we didn't know when she was going to be born. We simply knew that she was going to be born. But we had enough faith in the doctors to know kind of approximately when all of this was going to take place. And so for the weeks and months leading up to it, we did all the necessary preparations. We got all the diapers and the wipes and all the swaddle blankets and all the stuff that you have to have nowadays, or it seems that way. Uh, But for weeks and weeks, we lived in this constant balance of waiting and preparation. Waiting and preparation. Believing that she would be born at any time. We waited and we prepared. Advent is a season of faith. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of being prepared. For thousands of years, God's people believed that the Messiah would be born. And then he was. And now for you and me, in this time between the Advents, it's still a time of waiting as we await the rapture of the church, but ultimately the second coming, the second Advent of our Savior, that day when he will come again. And because we believe, because we have that faith, we're to be prepared. I want you to open your Bible along with me to Isaiah chapter 40 as we reorient our hearts and our minds towards this promise of God in this time between the Advents as we look back in faith to the first advent of Jesus as we look forward as well to the second advent of Jesus. As you're turning there to Isaiah chapter 40, you can see on your outline, here's what we're gonna do together this morning. We're gonna see here in Isaiah chapter 40, ultimately a tremendous promise, a comforting promise that God gives to the Jewish people. And then from that promise, we see three particular voices cry out, a voice of preparation saying, get ready, a voice of certainty saying, count on it, and a voice of salvation saying, your king is coming. Now, before we jump into the text, let's think first about the context, because here in Isaiah chapter 40, this is a major transition point in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters, really, of the book of Isaiah are ultimately a message of judgment. The northern kingdom of Israel has fallen into sin, and they've been taken off into exile by the Assyrians. And then now the southern kingdom of Judah, they also have fallen into sin, and there's been this promise of discipline that God's going to bring upon them, that one day the mighty Babylonians are going to come, and they are going to take the southern kingdom off into exile as well. And for 39 chapters, God, through the prophet Isaiah, has been giving this message of judgment that's to come. But now, in chapter 40, things begin to change. There's a transition. And the theme shifts from one of judgment now to one of hope. That the exile's not going to last forever. That God is not going to abandon his people, but they will remain his people forever. And we see this message spelled out here on Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to see again this promise of God, this promise of comfort from God, and then three voices that cry out in response, a voice of preparation, a voice of certainty, and a voice of salvation. Let's look first, though, at the comforting promise of God in Isaiah chapter 40. Let's begin in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 says this, Comfort, 
O comfort my people, says your God. Let's pause right there. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Again, this is really the, the transition point in the entire book of Isaiah. This message of hope, this message of comfort now spells out, spell, spills out from the page in this repeated word comfort. This word comfort, it's one of my favorite words in the Hebrew Bible. It's used, I think, 108 times and. Uh, it has a range of meaning all the way from the idea of comfort like we see here. But on the other hand, it also carries this idea of repentance is how it's translated, translated multiple times. We're gonna come back to this idea of repentance later. Uh, but for now, this word here in this context really does mean comfort. And it's used multiple times to describe a people who are suffering, who are undergoing hardship, and now a comfort is brought into their life. So out of the message of judgment and exile, now God tells his people, comfort, oh comfort, and notice how he refers to them. He calls them my people, says your God. Notice the pronouns there. Here God is really reaffirming his status, his relationship with his people. He's not abandoned them at all, even in the midst, even in the promise of exile and discipline and judgment. He's still their God and they are still his people. Again, the exile will not last forever. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks comfort. Oh, comfort, my people, says your God. And then notice verse two, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Literally speak to the heart of Jerusalem. This particular phrase is used nine times in the Old Testament and it's used to describe gentle, comforting words, encouraging words. Uh, it's used, in fact, to describe the way a mother tenderly speaks to her child, speaking to the heart of Jerusalem. And then notice why. Why should the Jewish people that people of Judah be comforted. Why should they feel tenderly cared for by God? Notice verse two, because her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed and she has received of the Lord's hand a double for all her sins. In other words, the exile is over and then notice the warfare has ended. This time of exile will be over. It will come to an end. But even more than that, your iniquity has been removed. Your sin has been removed. And third, she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is an interesting phrase. And Old Testament commentators wrestle back and forth over exactly what that means. But that phrase, double for all her sins, I don't think that means that God gave them a double punishment because God is a just God and he's a merciful God. But it simply means, I think, at the very basic level uh, that they have received their just punishment. They got exactly what they deserved. But again, these two verses are meant to be verses of comfort, God speaking from the heart to the heart of the Jewish people. And I want you to pause for just a second and put yourself in the sandals of those who would hear this message. For 39 chapters, God has told the Jewish people that discipline is coming. And it did. 
The Babylonians would come in and take that southern kingdom of Judah off into exile as a form of the Lord's discipline because of their disobedience. And if you were one of those people who's carted off into exile, just imagine with me for a moment that you're one of the lucky ones to have survived. Many of your friends and loved ones were killed. You now find yourself in Babylon, a land that is not your home. You do not belong there. You're an enemy territory. You've probably wrestled with God and thought, has God abandoned us? But up from the smoldering ashes of what was once Jerusalem, you're brought back to this chapter right here and the promise of God, oh, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is the message you would come back to time and time again, praying that God would restore you from exile. Listen, even though this is a message written to the people of Israel and we are not Israel, this is still a message that can bring us comfort and hope as well. Because like those Jews taken off into exile, we are not in our home. Babylon throughout scripture refers, yes, to the literal place of Babylon, but it also carries this metaphorical idea of just living in a fallen world. And we live in a fallen world. We live in a place that is not our home. With this idea in mind, Erwin uh, Lutzer of the Moody Church, a couple years ago, he wrote a book called The Church in Babylon. And I like what he says here. He says, as Aladdin, think the movie Aladdin, as Aladdin and Jasmine once sang, soaring on a magic carpet ride, it's a whole new world. But instead of a love story filled with wonder and excitement, Christians today find themselves in a whole new world that is vastly different from the one you grew up in. And the question we come to is this, how should Christians relate to this new world when they've lost home field advantage, are increasingly marginalized in our culture. Listen, I'm sure that each and every one of you has felt this to a certain extent, that in the course of your lifetime, things have changed. There's a brilliant man you're probably familiar with, a man by the name of Charles Taylor. He wrote a book a number of years ago called The Secular Age, and in the very introduction, he gives this beautiful description and he says this, and this is really kind of the point of the whole book. He says that 500 years ago, it was unimaginable in the Western world for someone not to believe in God. And yet here we are 500 years later, and it's almost unimaginable that someone does believe in God. Right? I don't know if you've ever had that interaction with people and they find out you're a Christian and they look at you as like you've got three heads or something. The world is changing. We live in a place that's not our home. But like I said last week, I think something we can all relate to is that this world is not what it's supposed to be. But praise be to God, this world is not ultimately what it will be. There's hope for us as we wait. We know we are created for something more, but we're waiting. So the question is, what do we do while we wait? What do we do with this 
comforting promise of God? Well, the solution we see in these next three voices, we see number two, three, and four on your outline. The voice of preparation, saying get ready. The voice of certainty, saying count on it. And the voice of salvation, saying your king is coming. Let's take a look at Number two on your outline first, the voice of preparation. So having heard the promise of God, this comforting promise of God that the exile will not last forever, now we come to another voice, a voice from heaven, probably that of an angel, and this is the voice of preparation. Notice verses three through five. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Lift every, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we come to a voice. This is the voice of preparation. And notice the language that this voice uses, the picture that it's painting here in our minds. Clear the way for the Lord. Make smooth a highway. Lift up every valley and make every rough ground into a a flat plain. This language here, what's being described by this voice from heaven is similar to what you would see when a royal dignitary would come and visit a particular location. Before the king, before that official would come to the land, there would be people who would go before him and clear out the path, make his arrival as smooth as possible. And this is the picture. It's a picture of preparation that we see here in these verses. The modern equivalent here would be to roll out the red carpet. To roll out the red carpet. In other words, get ready. Get ready. So back to the movie Aladdin for just a minute. If you recall the scene in the movie Aladdin when Prince Ali, who's now dressed up as Aladdin, or excuse me, Aladdin, who's dressed up as Prince Ali, he rides into Agrabah in order to try to impress Princess Jasmine. And he comes in with all sorts of pomp and circumstance. He rides in on an elephant. He has 75 golden camels, 53 purple peacocks, tons of exotic animals, a bunch of monkeys, 10,000 servants, 60 elephants, and llamas galore. And in the movie, there's a song, Make Way for Prince Ali. Hey, clear the way in the old bazaar. Hey, you, let us through. It's a brand new star. Oh, come, be the first on your block to meet his eye. Make way, here he comes. Ring bells, bang the drums. You're gonna love this guy sings the genie. And that's the type of picture we see here in these verses. Clear the way, make ready for the arrival. But of course, King Jesus is very different than Prince Ali. Jesus did not come in his first advent riding in with tons of pomp and circumstance. He rode in humbly on a donkey, but make no mistake about it, when he comes again, he will come in as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's the message of preparation that Isaiah gives us here. What's interesting is when you look at these verses in the New Testament, all four gospel writers use these verses and apply it to the ministry of John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist's ministry was one of preparing the way for Jesus' first coming, his first advent. And associated with that message of John the Baptist, the way the nation of Israel was to get ready then was through one word, repent. The way that the nation of Israel was supposed to get ready for the arrival of Jesus was to repent. So here we come to that word again. Earlier this week, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, emailed me an article that he wrote on repentance, and I really like how he defined repentance, and let me share that with you. He said that repentance for a Christian is turning to God, and then God enables us by his spirit to turn our lives around. I think that's a great and very basic but accurate description of what repentance is. It's when we turn to God, and God by his spirit turns our life around in obedience to him. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, said that before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to first see it as something done by us, which leads us to repentance. Another man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill said that the church is waiting for the world to become regenerate while the world is waiting for the church to become repentant. And that resonates with me. Because sometimes when it comes to Christmas, it's easy to celebrate the birth of baby Jesus, forgetting or conveniently ignoring the fact that this one born in the manger is also born to be our savior, to be our king, to be our Lord of our lives and of this church. To put it another way, one commentator of Isaiah says that this coming of God is not just a sweet little baby that we can coo over, but then ignore while we get on with our party. See, the way that we prepare here in Isaiah with the ministry of John the Baptist and even Jesus himself is we prepare through a lifestyle of repentance. So having heard the voice of God, this comforting promise of God that the exile will not last forever, which is followed by this voice of preparation, we come to another voice, the voice of certainty, which says, count on it. Because what God has just said, this voice of comfort, this voice of promise, you've got to put yourselves in the shoes of those who are in exile and how easy it would have been for them to lose hope. But here God gives a guarantee. You can count on it. It's certain. Notice verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 40. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? Let's pause right there. So I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, and it says here, then he answered. If you have NIV, which I know has historically been very common here at Grace, it says, then I answered. So which is it? Did he answer or did I answer? Um, I'll leave it to the Hebrew scholars to explain all the details, but I prefer the second reading, then I answered. Uh, for those Hebrew scholars, check out the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate. It all says, then I said, then I answered. But either way, a voice says, call out, then I answered, what shall I call out? And then notice here, here's the voice of certainty. 
All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Here in these poetic verses, these beautiful verses, what Isaiah is doing here, what this voice, this second voice from heaven is doing here is painting a contrast. On the one hand, you have us, human beings, and we're unreliable, we fade away, we cannot be trusted. But on the other hand, you have God himself, who is reliable, who stands firm, and the word of our God stands forever. And again, for those who are in exile, who are hanging on this promise of God for comfort. Here God backs up what he says with a certainty. This promise of God, this word of God will stand forever. He will comfort his people. He will restore his people from exile. It's guaranteed. I love a guarantee. I love companies that back up their products with guarantees. And if you've been in my office here at church, you may have noticed that all over my office I have leather everywhere. I love leather. And the company I go to for all my leather stuff is a company out in Fort Worth called Saddleback Leather. And their products are built to last. The motto of this company is they'll fight over it when you're dead. (laughs) Everything they make Belts, wallets, briefcases, everything they make comes with a 100-year warranty. If anything breaks, if anything goes wrong, they will fix it, no questions asked. It's guaranteed. But after 100 years, if that breaks, it's going to the landfill. Here what we see in these words of Isaiah, this promise of certainty is that the word of God, the promise of God, doesn't have a 100-year warranty. It has an eternal warranty. It will stand forever. And so the simple message here is you can count on it. So having heard the voice of God, the comfort of God, followed by the voice of preparation saying, get ready, followed by the voice of certainty saying, count on it, we now come to another voice, the voice of salvation saying, your king is coming. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine. Here we see the voice of salvation. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up, Your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Ultimately, this message of comfort that God gives comes through the one who has promised right here. You're probably familiar with these verses from Handel's Messiah. But notice What's supposed to be done here? The voice that's supposed to be proclaimed. It's supposed to get up on a high mountain to lift up your voice mightily, to say without any fear, to say to the cities of Judah, bearing this good news, here is your God. This is good news for those who are in exile, who are waiting on the Lord to fix what we have broken. Starting in verse 10, we now begin to see a description of exactly who it is who's coming. 
Behold this God who will arrive on the scene. Notice verse 10, it begins with this word behold. And anytime you see the word behold, you should imagine if you were making a movie, the camera lens would be focusing in on what's about to be said. And so in the camera lens of your own mind, imagine, if you will, focusing in on verse 10, the Lord God will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Here this God that Isaiah is portraying is pictured here as a conquering king. It says here that he comes with might or he comes like a strong man. He comes with his arm ruling for him. It pictures God with a certain military power and deliverance with the conquering as of a king, as a warrior God, marching through enemy territory, conquering his enemies, and carrying with him the spoils of war. That's what reward and recompense refers to here. In other words, the God that Isaiah sees coming is a force to be reckoned with. You don't want to mess with this guy. And yet notice as well verse 11. The same God, verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. See, this God that Isaiah sees coming is not only the conquering king, but he's also the good shepherd that we sang about earlier. Not only is this God who Isaiah sees coming the one who's going to dish out justice upon those who are his enemies, not only is this God the one who with his strong right hand will bring justice to this earth, but notice it's the same, this same God, this same hand that will gently lead his nursing ewes, his sheep to himself. Again, pause for a moment and consider the comfort that this would bring upon the original audience. That their God, the mighty God and yet also the good shepherd would gently regather them, carry them back to the land of Israel and lead them. Psalm 23 comes to my mind. And so as we take a step back and look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, and everything we've seen here, with this chapter begins with a promise of comfort by God. It's followed by three voices, a voice saying, get ready, a voice saying, count on it, and a voice saying, your king is coming. And what a great passage to picture who Jesus is. Yes, he is the mighty God, the conquering king. But for those who know him, he's also our good shepherd. He's our good shepherd. One commentator highlights that what we see here in Isaiah chapter 40 is similar to what we see in Revelation chapter five when John turning to see the lion sees instead a lamb. And ladies and gentlemen, this is who Jesus is. Make no mistake about it. He's a mighty warrior. He's a force to be reckoned with. 
but he's also our, our gentle and loving Savior who laid down his life for us, his sheep. And this morning, if you're here in person or if you're watching online and you don't know who this Jesus is, I want to beg you to consider this. As we look forward to the day of his return, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this equation. And the first and most important way that you prepare is simply by trusting in him, by believing in him. To know that he laid down his life for you, that he took upon himself the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. That one day he is going to return, hopefully as your savior, as your shepherd. So what does this have to do with Advent? Again, Advent is this, for us, is we're in this space, this liminal space between the Advents. When we look backwards into the time of Jesus' first Advent at the Incarnation, but we look forward also to the time of Jesus' second coming, the day when he will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And here in Isaiah chapter 40, we see that while we wait, we have faith. We have faith. And there's two major applications I wanna lay before you as we consider these verses. The first one, is that as we wait, we prepare. We prepare. And like in the New Testament, the way John the Baptist urged the nation of Israel to prepare for the coming of their Messiah, it was through that message of repentance. That we as Christians are to live lifestyles of repentance, constantly, as 1 John says, confessing our sin to the Lord, trusting that he's faithful and just to forgive us. Martin Luther said that when our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The second major application I have for you here really goes back to verse nine. As the city of Jerusalem, the people of Israel personified as a woman, as a woman are told to lift up their voice and proclaim to the people, to all who would hear, here is your God. I think we should do the same. That you and I have the unique opportunity to proclaim this message, to share with people this message of comfort and of hope. We live in a fallen world, there's no doubt about it, but we live in a world, I promise you, filled with people who are looking for hope. And you have the message. You are equipped with the truth to share with them. So lift up your voice. Say boldly, proclaim it from the hilltops. Here is your God. If you're looking for a really easy way to do this, because I know sharing your faith can often be challenging and scary, this is another shameless plug for you to grab some of these invitation cards and hand them out to people. That's why we do these events. We don't do these events just for our own enjoyment, right? Uh, we do these events so people will come and hear the good news of Jesus' birth. And so grab some of the invitation cards for the lessons and carols and for the journey into Christmas. And hopefully people will come and hear this message of comfort that God has for them. Also there on your bulletin, I've given you some application questions to consider, but your one thing for this week is to get ready, count on it, because your king is coming. And as you prepare for Christmas in your house, how can you also be preparing your heart for the celebration of Jesus' birth and the anticipation of his future reign on the earth?
Here in Isaiah chapter 40, we see this comforting promise of God followed by three voices. The voice of preparation saying, get ready. The voice of certainty saying, count on it. And the voice of salvation saying, your king is coming. 